Welcome to the South Fellowship Church Podcast. Here at South Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. Wherever you're listening from today, we hope you're encouraged by this week's message. Well, good morning, friends. How are you doing today? If you're visiting, my name's Alex, I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, it is so fun to be back doing this uh, with you, just being a community, learning together. This is like the longest I've not preached in in as long as I can remember. So I think I took four weeks off preaching, and and there's this moment, honestly, where you're like, do I remember how to do this? It feels like a big enough gap. Uh, And then I remember that my preaching professor didn't think I knew how to do it anyway, Uh, and so what difference can four weeks make? We're in this series uh, called Ordinary Time. As always, if you have a question about what we're talking about, good sermons should provoke questions. Theology provokes questions. It should create aha moments and then more questions. And so if you have them, we'd love to hear them. There is no question that Aaron is not brave enough to handle uh, on this podcast. And I will sit there with him um, dialoguing, you know, resting on his coat strings or whatever the phrase is there. This series, Ordinary Time, is based around the church calendar. If you're new to church calendar, new to faith, new to church following Jesus, that's fine. It's it's this old idea that we do things in cycles. So the church calendar begins before Christmas. In Advent, it begins with this idea that God God is with us in Jesus. Uh, It moves on through Lent and through Easter and celebrates the idea that God was doing something for us in the crucifixion, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It moves into Pentecost, this season we just celebrated God is in us, this idea that in the Christian faith we believe that that Jesus literally dwells, God, the Holy Spirit literally dwells within us, and that is transformative. And then we move into this season called Ordinary Time or normal time, which seems kind of on the surface weird. Like, why not just constant big celebrations? Why this cycle of like, it's just ordinary? And so we took this calendar and we said, well, what would it look like to follow the lectionary during this season? The lectionary is a couple of hundred years old. Some much smarter people than I am got together and said, what would it look like to teach these passages on a cycle? Because there's this beautiful idea, if you're new to to the Bible, that it is one book, But it's also 66 books, and it's written by all sorts of different authors. And some of them are historical books, some of them are wisdom books, some of them are apocalyptic books, some of them are letters written to specific specific congregations, some of them are biographies. There's all sorts of things going on there, and yet they all interconnect in this big story. So, So we looked at this picture in week one of how this is all the different texts that interconnect in all sorts of different ways. And we said, what would it look like to take this thing that so many churches around the world will be studying the same passages as us today and, and learn it alongside them? Because scripture is wonderful in its interconnectedness. Maybe another way that might help us understand this is, is New York. How many of you have ever ridden the subway in New York City? So you know, right, there's, there's different lines, and some stations just have one line that goes through them. And then some stations have three or four, and it gets pretty complicated. And have you noticed how there's some passages of of Scripture that we come back to a lot? Genesis chapter 1, chapter 3, maybe Genesis chapter 12, the story of Abraham, maybe the early parts of Exodus, the Exodus story. We kind of go through those stations often. But then there's all these others that we might miss, and the lectionary makes sure that they all get pulled in, so we get through huge passages 
of Scripture, and we connect all of those dots together. But there's another thing that I'd love you to know about this series this morning, another way that I think this idea of ordinary time speaks to you and I as people today in the 21st century. Have you ever tried to make a moment? I mean, to create this event, to, to come together with like, different people. You maybe have an idea and you send out the invites and you, you get together and you do the plan and you get the photograph and everything, and it's supposed to be spectacular. It's supposed to be great. And sometimes it is. And then other times, you're like, eh, it was actually just good. And there's nothing wrong with good, but maybe it's not quite what you hoped for. I think we do this often in life. Some years ago, when I was on vacation with my family, I grabbed this picture of the cousins. We now call it the cousins photo. There was this organic moment where the five of them sat together and there were arms around shoulders and there was this celebration. And now we do this every single year. We're on vacation together. Some of them have grown up. There's more of them now. There's this expansion and there's a, you know, this way of families growing. And it's always good. But it's not always quite like the first moment where we grabbed that first shot and we said, oh, that, that's special. Sometimes you can plan, and that's fine, it's good. But sometimes there's the moments that catch you off guard, that perhaps catch you in your chest or in your throat. There's those moments that maybe bring tears to your eyes, those moments of like, oh, wow, that, that was wonderful. And sometimes I get to Easter, and I'm really intentional about thinking about Jesus' death and resurrection. Sometimes I get to Advent and I'm really intentional thinking about the incarnation, that Jesus was present with us on this earth. And it's always good. And sometimes it comes, I come out of that season and it's great, everything I hoped it would be. But what I think ordinary time does is this. It creates these moments where God might surprise us. Those moments where he might just appear almost out of nowhere and we had no idea how wonderful it was going to be, but something about it, it just... It's just there, and God is present, and it becomes transformative. The writer Mark Iaconelli said this, there are moments, often unexpected, where you find yourself at home in your own life. Have you ever done that? Maybe looked around the place that you're living? Looked around the people you're doing life with, whether it's roommates, whether it's family, whether you're, you're at home, but you've looked around and you said, oh, yeah, this suddenly feels like a good space. Suddenly, this feels right. Sometimes there's these moments spiritually where God catches us and suddenly it becomes transformative almost out of nowhere and, and that's what I think ordinary time gives us an opportunity to do. Gives God an opportunity to catch us off guard. So as we've said every week, uh, listen with anticipation for what the Spirit might be saying to you. This week, we get to look at a passage in the lectionary, and I'm super excited, uh, as you might be able to tell. We're going to spend three weeks in it, and I'm going to ask you to stand for the reading of the word if you're able to stand. This is Romans chapter 8, and if you've never heard this passage before, I'm actually more excited for you than anybody else in the room, because it's just so good. Someone described, Douglas Moo described Romans as a, a mountain that lives on the, like, the high peaks of all of the mountains of scripture. I asked a friend, 
what's the best of the peaks? Because he's climbed all of them. He said Mount Sneffels is officially the greatest of all of the peaks in the Rocky Mountains. And so imagine yourself hiking through those mountains. I don't know, you're wearing Birkenstocks or wherever you're hiking. I don't know much about hiking, so revealing my ignorance there. And suddenly, out of all the peaks you've seen, you're, you're, you're captured by this incredible peak beyond peaks. It might be unusual to describe scripture in those ways, but people have described Romans 8 like this, this standout passage. So here we go. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on the flesh, what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's laws, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, were not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. That part was good. Wait till you get to the next couple of weeks because it gets even better. Let's pray. Jesus, as we open your word, would you speak to us? Uh, would you transform lives? As we've been trying to do every week, help us to listen to the voice of your spirit and be transformed. Amen. Amen. As I say, Douglas Moo said this, Romans 8 deserves to be put in the front rank for its portrayal of Christian life. Prominent in this description is the work of the Holy Spirit. 21 times Paul will mention the Spirit in this passage, just reminding us this, that, that we have a Father who made us. There is Jesus Christ who suffered and died for us. And there is the Holy Spirit who sustains us, who brings us to that new life. And the start is just so good, right? We're just captivated by this idea. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. That, if nothing else, is worth celebrating. There is this idea that you have been moved from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of life. That's a once and for all time thing and you get to celebrate that each and every day. Whatever there is beyond this life, there is no condemnation now we're told for you and I. There is some mystery there though too. What is the law of sin and death? How do we understand that? And of course, for those of you that are perceptive, you'll notice that I left the first word unhighlighted because it starts with this little word, therefore suggests to us that we may not be able to tell anything 
really about this passage without knowing what Paul has already written to this church almost 2,000 years ago. This little word, therefore, is this Greek word, ara. Therefore, since, because of, it follows that is a good way of saying it. It's a legal expression. It could be a negative legal expression. It's the moment that you get a knock on the door and someone in a uniform says, you know, you were recorded speeding at 120 miles an hour on C470. Then we found a video online of you bragging about how your new Tesla could do naught to 60 in 2.1 seconds. Therefore, based on these events, we're about to take you into custody. It, it could be terrifying in a marriage context. It's the conversation of, because you didn't or did do this today, therefore, you will be sleeping on the couch tonight. There's all of those different illustrations that we could pull out of it. In this sense, it's an entirely positive therefore. Paul is telling us, I have written to you a lot of things. Therefore, because of all these things, this is the good news. There is no condemnation. It's almost this requirement that we go back. And so somewhere in the time that we have, we're going to try and do Romans chapters 1 through 7, or at least highlights of them in a couple of minutes. Perhaps some of the, these passages are familiar if you have been around faith for a while. 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 5, 7, and 8, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. My guess is some of you in the room came to faith in Jesus through verses just like this. Perhaps it was described as the Roman road or something like that. And maybe you've even called it, this is the gospel. And I would say it's some of the gospel. It's, it's maybe a big part of it, but, but the beauty of this gospel message of Jesus is how broad it is that as we get further into Romans, we start to hear language like all of creation groans and God is renewing and restoring everything around us. This world itself is being renewed and restored. So, so this is a huge chunk of, of what we might call the good news of Jesus Christ, but, but it's bigger, it's kingdom. It's all the things that we hope to see in the world around us. But this is good stuff, right? And then Paul gets to Romans chapter seven and he almost seems to go a little bit negative. After all of this positive stuff, this is all the stuff that God has done. He starts to wrestle with some of his own condition. And this is a hard verse to follow, so see if you can track. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual. Sold as a slave to sin, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. Did you catch that? Uh, for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. If you don't kind of, if it's hard to pass the verbs, I bet you've experienced it. I bet you've experienced the moment of saying, I'm never going to do that again. And then you do. There's the moment of saying, I'm definitely going to be this person in the future. And then you aren't. This is, this is a human condition. It's not just Paul. It's me, and I'm guessing it's you. But it's Paul unpacking this idea of, of just what the law of sin and death is. It's this thing that can't be beaten, that he's tried to beat as it turns out. I would suggest Romans, especially in chapter 7, reflects on a graceless world centered on this law of sin and death. It's a graceless world out there in Paul's mind. And inevitably, there's two truths. 
There is our sinful state, how messy and murky it gets when we explore the depths of here, and that death follows maybe quicker than you expected. As we began, I said that the lectionary is beautiful in how it connects these passages from all over the place. And and in actual fact, this idea of the the law of sin is maybe really well explained by another lectionary passage from this week, which is Genesis chapter 25. It says, Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer and his wife, Rebecca, became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her and she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. The two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. You know some people like this. So they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. This is a historical story. It's about two brothers that turn out to be at war with each other. But isn't it true somewhere in the depths of us? At our core, we often find ourselves at war with the world around us. In fact, everyone around us. There's, there's, there's definitions of the Greek word for sin, and it might be something like missing the mark. But actually, think about where you see something like sin at, at work. Where do you see it? You see it in this obsession with self and me being the center and me getting everything that I want. There's an Arabic proverb that goes like this. Me against my brothers. Me and my brothers against my cousins. Me and my cousins against my clan. Me and my clan against the world. It pictures someone at war with everybody until you can get down to the the reductionist point of saying to to the people closest, I'm at war with them for my own success, for me getting what I want want. And sometimes I wonder whether this just doesn't go to the very depth and core of all of us, if we're honest. And sometimes I wonder whether I'm too self-introspective at this point, too. I love to take my kids out to Minnesota every summer. Laura's folks have a lake house there, and I love teaching them to drive uh, the boats out there. This is a video of Gigi out there, like, learning to drive. And I'm super proud of her, and I love doing that with them. But I also recognize somewhere in me, there's a selfish part. That I love them thinking I'm the cool dad that lets them drive the boats and is teaching them how to drive it. And someday, someone will take, be taken out on a boat ride by them, and they'll be like, wow, you can do this kind of thing somewhere. And at core, there's a lot of self, if we're honest. The writer and storyteller, Dan Allender, talks about attending his daughter's piano recital. He says as he got there, he sat down, and there's this moment where she's playing through a piece of music, and she stops halfway and freezes. She has no idea what comes next. And so she starts the piece again and plays all the way through, and the tension builds in the room to this palpable point as she gets to the point where she froze before. Will she continue? Will she freeze again? And she freezes, stands up, shrugs her shoulders and walks off the stage. And then there's the moment afterwards where he says people come up and say, oh, you were the girl, you were the father of the girl that froze, right? And after multiple conversations, he leaves the room and strides towards the car and is arrested halfway to the car with this tug on his coat. And he turns around and it's his daughter. And his daughter looks at him with these 
heartbreakingly watery eyes and says, Daddy, why do you hate me? Why do you hate me? And he says, babe, I don't hate you. And her reply is this. Well, then why have you said nothing to me about what I did? Why have you barely looked at me? And why are you walking so fast when you know I can't keep up with you? There's this way that we parent, perhaps, that reflects on how our kids will, will speak of us, how they will kind of speak to our health as parents, our goodness as parents, and perhaps that extends to almost every relationship in life. We live in a graceless world so often, and it, and it seems like the rottenness can go down to the very core of us more often than we'd like to believe. In Verse 22 of chapter 7, Paul says this, So I find that this law, this law at work, although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man that I am. Have you ever had one of those moments? You want to be a specific type of person, and then something happens, and you react in a specific way, and afterwards you're like, oh, that wasn't the way. That wasn't what I had planned. But something seemed to grab me from alongside me or behind me almost. And this is what it produced. Oh, wretched man that I am. Paul has a remedy for this. He's had one for years. He wants to obey God's laws, but it, but it just isn't working. In actual fact, third lectionary passage for this week, Psalm 119. Accept, Lord, the willing praise of my mouth and teach me your laws. Though I can constantly take my life in my hands, I will not forget your law. The wicked have set a snare for me, but I have not strayed from your precepts. Your statutes are my heritage forever. They are the joy of my heart. My heart is set on keeping your decrees to the very end. Paul could have written this if he wasn't born a thousand years too late. It's just his heartbeat, but he confesses, I just can't keep up with it. Somewhere inside me, there's something that just feels rotten. One of the big discussions around the book of Romans is, is Paul talking about now, currently, in his current state, or is he just recollecting the past? And I'm not sure which is right theologically, but I know that I seem to teeter between Romans chapter 7 and Romans chapter 8. It's all the things that I know that I want to be, and then there's these moments where I feel that I'm a wretched man in my core. People have come up with remedies for this human condition over the years. One, one of my favorites is Martin Luther's, uh, who reportedly said this, whoever drinks beer, he is quick to sleep. Whoever sleeps long does not sin. Whoever does not sin enters heaven. Thus, let us drink beer. <laughs> if you know anything about Martin Luther, that's the most Martin Luther thing that you could imagine. It's like just, yes, honest as the day is long. Paul has his remedy, it's the Jewish law. The truth is he just finds that it doesn't work. And that's where we land on this, what a wretched man that I am. The, the rottenness to the core is real. And we could spend a long time talking about it. This is where we get to his therefore. This is his moment of celebration, and this is why chapters in the Bible can be the most irritating thing, because you can't understand chapter eight without chapter seven. So we need to read the end of chapter seven and then the beginning of chapter eight, and it gives us this beautiful picture of what Paul is trying to say. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Therefore, 
There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. We know now where Paul is going. We know what he's there for. is because of all these things. This is why you experience the freedom that you experience. I would suggest Roman's big argument is this. A graceless world needs grace-filled people. Paul hardly ever uses the word grace in Romans, but it's exactly what he's talking about. He's talking about God's good give to us, and that's what makes possible everything in Romans chapter 8. But as you imagine, I have some questions at this point. Because I get the whole, like, no condemnation in this big eternal sense, and I celebrate that. But I have some questions about how broad it is and whether it extends to this life, because I hope it does. As I say, I read Romans chapter 8, and and I sometimes wonder whether I live often more in Romans chapter 7, if I'm honest. I found this book in my house, made me chuckle. I buy a lot of books, as I may have told you before. And I found this book behind a bookshelf, not on a bookshelf, should have been on the bookshelf, but I was doing some vague tidying, and I came across this book I'd bought a while before. Let me zoom in on it for you. Making Space Clutter Free. (laughs) Hidden exactly where it belongs, with many other books, behind a bookshelf gathering dust. I bought the book because of what it said on the cover. I thought it might help Laura help us have a clutter-free environment. And of course, it didn't because it ended up where so many of my books end up unread, stuck in a corner somewhere. And sometimes I feel that way about Romans. I know what it says, and I've actually read it. But sometimes this beautiful vista of life, this high peak of Christian living that it describes, I wonder, do I live that? Especially when it says no condemnation. Because taking out of the eternal perspective and bringing it into the now, I almost don't need God to condemn me because I'm very ready to do it myself. I don't need God to condemn anybody else because I'm very ready to do it myself. And I think that they might be too. There's this wrestling that goes on that leads to condemnation. I think maybe this is some of what Paul's getting to in the next part of our passage. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer acknowledges this, that when all is said and done, the life of faith is nothing if not an unending struggle of the spirit with every available weapon against the flesh. And I love how Eugene Peterson breaks this down in the message. It really just clears up some of the difficult language. Catch hold of this and see if it resembles how you do life, because it definitely resembles how I often end up doing life. Those who think they can do it on their own end up obsessed with measuring their own moral muscle but never get around to exercising it in real life. Those who trust God's action in them find that God's spirit is in them, living and breathing God. Obsession with self in these matters is a dead end. Attention to God leads us out into the open, into a spacious, free life. Focusing on the self is the opposite of focusing on God. Anyone completely absorbed in self ignores God, ends up thinking more about self than God. 
Sometimes when I look at the way that I operate in life, I'm good on this no condemnation in this eternal sense, but I'm regularly condemning myself and condemning others. In reality, it's doing exactly what he says there. It's this focus on self and measuring yourself against everybody else. The writer David Seaman said this, two major causes of most emotional problems amongst evangelical Christians are these. The failure to understand receive and live out God's unconditional love, grace, and forgiveness, and the failure to give out that unconditional love, grace, and forgiveness to others. We live in a graceless world, and sometimes we find, for whatever reason, Christians can be amongst the most graceless of that world. And yet, shouldn't the opposite be the case? Shouldn't this inspirational story of grace, this transforming message of grace, be a thing that leads us to adopt that grace and to give it out to those around us? And yet sometimes it seems like the opposite is true. The shame and condemnation that lands in the internal places of our hearts. Paul's friend John says this to a group of people he writes to. My dear children, let's not just talk about love. Let's practice real love. This is the only way we'll know we're truly living, truly living God's rea- in God's reality. It's also the way to shut down debilitating self-criticism, even when there is something to it. For God is greater than our worried hearts and knows more about us than we do ourselves. I would suggest that our graceless world might also be called a shame-filled world. And we're great often at applying shame to ourselves, and we're great at applying it to other people. And yet, a graceless world, a shame-filled world, desperately, desperately needs grace-filled people. Paul paints this beautiful picture of his community, of this Jesus community, as one that's supposed to be captivated, supposed to be filled by grace. And yet, often, I, I would say we experience lives empty of grace, not captivated by grace. So a question for you and for me is this, what story fills you with grace? And the answer, of course, on the surface might be, well, the Jesus story fills me with grace. But what I notice about this world, what I notice about writers that I come across is the ones that I love the most are the ones that teach me about that story while maybe not talking specifically about that story. They just illustrate it, highlight it, shine spotlights on it, bring it to life in new, different ways. And there's millions of stories out there. And I feel like we need them to become those grace-filled people, to become captivated by grace. So I'm gonna share one of my favorites with you. And I love this one for a specific reason. It's a story called Babette's Feast, which I'll try and narrate in a small amount of time. Babette's Feast is set out in Norway in the 18th century. It's this small village run by a strict sect of Lutherans, and the leader is the strictest of them all. He runs this village with an iron fist. He has two daughters, Martine and Philippa. They're both fallen deeply in love. Martine with a cavalry officer in the Spanish court. Philippe with a famous opera singer from Paris. Despite the attraction, despite the affection, they decide to say no to love, to stay with their father, to continue running this sect. The father eventually dies, and without his strong leadership, the sect starts to splinter. There's bad business practices, there's people just ripping off each other, there's friends that have not talked now for decades, there's rumors of an affair between two of the members of the sect. Something just doesn't feel right. Right. 
but they continue being faithful, continue doing the work they feel like they're supposed to do. And then one day, some years later, there's a knock on the door in the middle of a stormy night, and they open the door and find a woman slumped against the doorposts. She has a letter in her hand that comes from the opera singer that Philippe has loved all those years ago. The letter simply says that this is a woman who's escaping from the revolutionaries in France. Her family have been killed. Would they please look after her? She can cook. Babette, it says, can cook. Well, the sisters are worried that they can't feed another mouth, but, but they feel obliged to take her in, and she convinces them with some pleadings and gesturings. And so they bring her into the community, and she begins to help them in their work. She rolls her eyes the first time. They teach her how to make gruel from the small fish that they catch in the bay. But she actually brings some new life to this community. And so life continues for this small, dwindling sect of people trying to follow in the ways of Martin Luther as he expresses the ways of Jesus. Until 10 years later, when Babette receives her first letter. In 10 years, no one has written to her, and yet this letter contains news from a friend. She's renewed Babette's lottery ticket every year, and this year she won 10,000 francs, an incredible sum of money. The sisters celebrate with her, but inwardly they're heartbroken. Babette will surely be returning to France now. They'll lose this person who's become a friend. Just so happens that all these events coincide with the celebration of a hundred years of this small community. And so Babette asks them a favor. Can I make you a real French dinner to celebrate a hundred years of the birth of this community? Well, the sisters are nervous. Don't the French drink lots of wine? Don't they talk about love all the time? Don't they eat these ostentatious meals? How can they bring that kind of thing to their small community of people? But Babette has never asked them a favor in 10 years. They feel like they have to say yes. So they make an agreement between all the villagers that they'll eat the meal, but say nothing about its quality. Not a word of praise will pass their lips. They'll just consume it. Babette begins her preparations for the feast over the next couple of weeks. She pulls all of these ingredients from all over the world. A, a huge turtle is pulled off a ship and walks up towards the village. There's casks of wine that appear from all over the place, hunks of meat, things never seen in this small village before. On the night of the feast, they hear that one of the villagers, 99 years old, will be accompanied by her grandson, the same cavalry officer that Martine fell in love with all of those years ago. As they sit down to begin to share the meal together, they're met by this table beyond their imagination. Babette has gathered crystal from every person she can find. There's china, everything's decorated in beautiful greenery. It is a wonder. And as they bring out the first course, the general is amazed. He eats the turtle soup and declares it to be the finest that he's ever tried. He drinks a glass of wine and rhapsodizes about its vintage and how it might be found in this small Norwegian town. The villagers, true to their words, say nothing about the meal. Just simply consume it, mouthful after mouthful. But as time goes on, the, uh, the food begins to work a magic on the villagers. They start talking to people that they haven't talked to for years. Someone burps and a brother accidentally yells, hallelujah, and it's this moment of breaking the ice. The general, he can only talk about the food and what he's receiving from Babette's kitchen. 
when the final dish, the coupe de grace, appears. He declares that he's only seen this dish, quail cooked on Suffolk in one restaurant in the world, in the famous Café Anglais in Paris, a restaurant known for its female chef. The movie ends with two scenes. One is of these villagers who have rekindled their old faith, who have rebuilt old relationships, celebrating in the courtyard in a snowy evening. The other is the kitchen, where Babette sits amongst dishes and dirt and mess. And the two sisters approach her and realize that they've, true to their words, said nothing about the meal. And so Martine begins, it was quite a nice meal, Babette. Babette simply replies in a daze, I was once the chef at the Café Anglais in Paris. Philippe tries again to stir Babette out of her lethargy and says, we'll remember it long after you've gone back to France. And Babette replies, well, I won't be going back to France. All my family are dead, my friends are gone, and I have no money and it would be expensive to go. The sisters reply, well, what about the 10,000 francs? You can use those 10,000 francs. And she says, I spent the 10,000 francs on the meal that you've just consumed. That's what a meal for 12 costs at the Café Anglais in Paris. What I love about this story, what captivates me is this. It seems like it's possible to partake in grace, to, to receive it, and to be completely unappreciative of its wonder. It seems like it's possible to take it as a transaction that simply says, well, of course that's the way it was, and yet grace, it seems, is supposed to captivate us, supposed to fill us in these incredible ways because it comes always free of charge to the person who receives it, costing the person who gives it everything. It's always free of charge. It's always on the house, and it's always no strings attached. There's something about grace that is supposed to compel us, that's supposed to fill us, that's supposed to transform us. And what this parable tells us is sometimes it can be missed. It can be missed by the people that it was given for. What story fills you with grace? Or perhaps what stories fill you with grace? And how do you get to extend that grace to others? And how are you showing grace to yourself? Somewhere, God's answer to this graceless world is grace-filled people. Perhaps you've experienced those moments of receiving grace and noticed how it changes your attitude to those around you. Hopefully, you've experienced those moments of experiencing grace and realized that it allows you to be grace-filled towards yourself as well. I'd love to end with this quote from Brennan Manning. Because salvation is by grace through faith, I believe that among the countless number of people standing in front of the throne and in front of the Lamb, dressed in white robes and holding palms in their hands, as you see the prostitute from the Kit Kat Ranch in Carson City, Nevada, who tearfully told me she could find no other employment to support her two-year-old son. I shall see the woman who had an abortion and is haunted by guilt and remorse, but did the best she could faced with grueling alternatives. The businessman besieged with debt, who sold his integrity in a series of desperate transactions. The insecure clergyman, addicted to being liked, who never challenged his people from the pulpit and longed for unconditional love. The sexually abused teen molested by his father, now selling his body on the street, who as he falls asleep each night after his last trick whispers the name of the unknown God he learned about in Sunday school. 
but how we ask. Then the voice says, they have washed their robes and have made them white in the blood of the Lamb. There they are. There we are. The multitude who so wanted to be faithful, who at times got defeated, soiled by life and bested by trials, wearing the bloodied garments of life's tribulations, but through it all clung to faith. My friends, if this is not good news to you, you have never understood the gospel of grace. Somewhere I would suggest at its heart, Romans is not just no condemnation sometime in the future, but it allows us to be gracious with ourselves and allows us to be gracious with those around us. This passage in Romans, it speaks of the end of this graceless world. It's coming to an end. And it's coming to an end partly because of grace-filled people like you and I. A graceless world needs grace-filled people. What story fills you with grace? I've asked Chris and Matt to sing a song over us just for you to contemplate. Just for you to listen, as we've said each week, to that voice of the Spirit. Maybe you've grasped this idea that there is this no condemnation eternity. And that's good. That's wonderful news. But maybe if you're honest, there's this heart that is constantly self-condemning, constantly self-critical. And then maybe there's this heart that's constantly mad at the world around it, angry at everybody else. The invitation of the God of the universe is to step towards grace. Allow it to imbibe you. Let it be the thing that you talk about, the thing that you celebrate. Don't receive it with just meager praise, but receive it for the wonder and joy that it is, the celebration that it is. You are wonderfully and fearfully loved, loved by a Father who made you, and by Jesus Christ who suffered and died for you, and by the Holy Spirit who sustains you. You're invited to come out of hiding, from shame, condemnation, and to stand with the millions others that will stand in front of the good Father that loves you, simply because of grace that comes free of charge on the house, no strings attached. If God is working in your life through this ministry, join us by partnering with us. You can give online at southfellowship.org give. And thanks for listening. We hope you have a great rest of your day.